Good morning. How is everyone on January 2nd? My goodness. It's hard to believe, right? 2022. I was just uh, reminiscing with uh, my family over the last uh, week. For some of you, you weren't born yet, but I do remember, remember the Y2K. <laughs> 22 years ago, I remember that quite vividly because our daughter Jessica, she was born January 31st. 2020, and everyone was in panic mode <laughs> um, as it came to Y2K, whether everything was going to shut down, right? Remember all the, and then remember as the, um, the ball dropped in Australia, everyone was wondering if the lights were going to stay on, right? <laughs> but for you who are younger, you just slept through that. There's other things that you think about, but in the bulletin, you have the title of the message. That's really the subtitle. Ah, ah, there it is. There's the full message. The full title uh, is A Vision for the New Year. Since it's January 2nd, we are thinking about what's ahead of us. And uh, we'll see just in a moment that scripture reminds us as we think of the new year, renew hope, confidence, strength for life, right? We're to think of the future, biblically, <laughs> and to renew our confidence for 2022 and every year thereafter. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we think through a vision for the new year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us today from your word. Help us to think of the future, of what you are doing in this world, that your sovereign rule is going just as planned, even though we live in a chaotic mess, seemingly, uh, that uh, what is planned will occur and that this knowledge of the future and a vision of the future can help us today and in this year renew our hope, renew our confidence, help us to, to rest, to trust, to work, to stand firm, to be courageous, to be those who live for you uh, faithfully as you've called us to live. So help us this day on this new year to renew our confidence in you by looking at the future and by making that vision of what is ahead of us, the glory of a new heavens and a new earth, that it will then spur us to life and godliness in this year. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, as you know, right, uh, as you come to an end of every year, I'm sort of, many of you are, you listen to podcasts and you're news junkies. I'm sort of a news political junkie uh, that I then hear, you know, reports at the end of last week. Everyone is saying, what happened in the last year, right? And I was listening to one podcast where he was listing all the people who died and all the events that occurred. And then they look to the future, right? What's going to happen in 2022, then we make our New Year's resolutions, right, of what we're going to change and so on. But particularly when you think of the future, right, people will say, this is what we can expect this year. And of course, now 2022 is, is a political year, it's an election year, for all the pundits on that. It's an Olympic year, and that's coming up very soon in China uh, with the Winter Olympics, right? But it's also a year where, um, as people look to the future, they begin to fear especially after coming through the last couple of years, is the crazy government going to keep us shut down? <laughs> what are they going to do to us again, right? Uh, are they going to continue their actions, right? Um, my trust in Washington, D.C. is zero. 
And so I get very, very concerned. What's going to come down the pike here? What's going to come down the road? Now, if we're thinking biblically as Christians, right? You have all of your pundits. You have all your people then saying, this is what's going to happen, right? There's a couple of things that we need to think about uh, if we're thinking biblically. First of all, we already know what's going to happen, right? In broad strokes, I can tell you what's going to happen this year, and I'm not Nostradamus, right? Nostradamus. Uh, if you go to places such as Matthew 24, 25, and so on, right, we know that we as Christians live between the first and second coming of Christ. And we know exactly what's going to happen this year is what happened last year, what's been happening for the last 2,000 years, right? There's going to be simultaneously persecution, sufferings, trials, difficulties, count on it. If you don't think that you're going to face trials and difficulties, you're not reading your Bible. For 2,000 years, right, there will be wars and rumors of wars. That happened last year, happened for 2,000 years. There's going to be disease, there's going to be famine, there's going to be death, there's going to be nations coming and going. This nation may come and go. But simultaneously with that, there's going to be the spread of the gospel. There's going to be the triumph of the church. There's going to be the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That goes on simultaneously. That's been happening for 2,022 years or even less than that since the Lord Jesus, and it will happen this year. So that's broad strokes, but we can say this is precisely what we face, right? We're going to face difficulties. Prepare for it. But you're also going to see the Lord's hand bringing about his sovereign purposes through his church and through us right, as his people, right? And there's another biblical truth that as we think of the new year is we must think of the future to help us for the present, right? Now, this has been the study in Christian thought, right, in terms of what we call eschatology. Now, in our Western world, we don't talk much about eschatology anymore. That's the study of last things, right? We don't do that because I'm afraid. <laughs> We're pretty content. We're pretty content with this world. It's pretty good for us, right? If you go around through the years of 2,000 years, right, as Christians face trials and difficulties and it's heightened, they often think greatly about eschatology, right? And the Bible tells us if you're going to be effective today, you must know what's coming in the future. And the future must impact. It doesn't make you sort of live pie in the sky type of thing. It makes you live presently today if god is doing that in the future then i don't have to fear today right i can be courageous today i can even lay down my life today knowing that the future is secure right now that's where the book of revelation comes in and i invite you to turn to the last great vision of the entire bible right which is revelation 21 and 22 right this is not only the last vision of the book, but in God's arrangement of the canon of Scripture, the whole Scripture, it's also the last vision of the entire Bible, right? It's the bookend to Genesis, right? Very important to see that Revelation really is bringing to completion what God first began in the creation of the world, and now bringing about a new creation, the bookends of the Bible, right? And these people that this book was written to 
were facing trials and difficulties. They live in the same time period that you and I lived in. They faced wars and rumors of wars, persecution, sufferings, trials, and so on. At the same time, the spread of the gospel, and this vision for them was to encourage them to press on, <laughs> to be faithful, to be true, to stand for what is right, to good in a world that opposes us, and it will oppose us until Jesus comes again. And so this vision then captures for them a vision of the future to help them in the present. Now, let me just mention something about this book. In terms of the book of Revelation, it's obviously controversial with people, right? People have all kinds of different interpretations. Part of the reason they have different interpretations of it, I think, is they don't treat it as what it actually is. It's an apocalyptic or unveiling vision, right? And in this kind of literature, you don't read it like you read the Gospels, or you don't read it like you read wisdom literature or the poetry and so on. It's got all kinds of symbolism, and even we'll see in these chapters, the symbolism conflicts with one another, right? And that's purposeful, right? You're going to see just in a moment that there's a city that is a bride. Now, you try to make a city a bride and draw that. <laughs> just as in Revelation 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is also a lamb. Now, he's not half lion and half lamb. It's imagery. He's lion, he's lamb, he's that simultaneously. And the same thing is going on here. It's apocalyptic vision. It's full of all kinds of symbols. People try to sort of, sort of make these flat. <laughs> they try to take the symbols and say, well, this means this and this means that. If you do that, you destroy the book. Right? It's a grand vision that is giving us a vision of ultimately a new heavens and new earth, what the future looks like in just shadow form in some sense. It's going to be far greater than you could ever imagine, but this is just to captivate your imagination. And that's what this book is doing, and this is the final vision of all of Scripture. And we can look at this vision in chapter 21 and 22 in sort of four steps. Now, I realize that our time last week, I think, I wasn't here, but I think people got out around 11 o'clock. Well, we're starting at 11 o'clock, right? So I'll keep this short, right, as you work through this vision to encourage us, right? And our goal in doing so is to send us forth from this place, this beginning uh, New Year, Sunday, New Year of the year, confident, trusting the Lord, eager to serve Him and honor Him no matter what may come. Well, verses 1 to 8, chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, tells us something about what the new creation is and why it's new, right? And there's some features of it. What's new about this new creation? different than our present world, right? What's new about it? Verses 1 to 8. Then we read some more details about this new creation. So we will just simply say, here is the beauty of this new creation, right? And just some further details that captivate our imagination. And then in verses 22, so verses 1 to 8, verses 9 through 21, the beauty of the new creation, what's missing from the new creation. There's a few elements that are different than that which is previous, and that is found in verses 22 through 27, and then the beginning of chapter 22, what is central <laughs> to the new creation? What is at the heart of it? And you're going to quickly find out it's not you. <laughs> it's not even your relative. <laughs> it's not even the absence of your pain. Good as all those things may be, central, central fact of the new creation is 
God. God himself, in all of his triune glory, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that's what makes the new creation new. And that is what must motivate us to see the glory of God. So that's the four areas that we're looking at. What is new about this new creation, verses 1 to 8, chapter 21. What is beautiful, the beauty of this new creation, verses 9 through 21. What is missing from the new creation, verses 22 through 27. And what is central, God, right? Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 22. Verse 1 to 8, we read in chapter 21, Then I saw, so after... Judgment, destruction. Basil spoke about hell last week, and that's the judgment that is then spoken of in chapter 20 at the very end of verses 11 and following, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, right? So there's the old creation is gone, the new has come. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as, now you're seeing this city come down, but it's now a bride. <laughs> prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. How can you be sure that this is going to happen? He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. <laughs> you already heard, it is finished. Well, it's very comparable here. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to him who is thirsty. I will give to drink without cost to the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. There's the spurring of the bond, right? Seeing this, press on, press on. He who overcomes. He who overcomes will inherit this. I will be his God, and they will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So hell has, judgment has occurred. Now there is the glory of the new heavens and new earth. Right? Well, obviously, even in these verses here, we want to ask, what is new? It's literally a vision of a whole new creation. Right? It's picking up the Old Testament, all of the book of Revelation. It's interesting, there's not one quotation from the Old Testament, but everything's Old Testament. <laughs> Allusions, symbols, teaching, it's just immersed in it. And if you go back to the Old Testament, if you read the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet looks to the future. And he says, there's coming a new heavens and new earth, Isaiah 65. Well, now, the book of Revelation says that new heavens and earth is now here. So what the Old Testament prophets look forward to, which has begun to come in Jesus Christ, now will be consummated. Right? 
And that's the vision of the future. A new heavens and new earth. The old has entirely passed away. Right? The new creation came in Jesus Christ in some sense, but this is now the finality of it, the consummated fullness of it. And in the description of this, there's a couple of features of what is new versus what is of the old. Right? The first thing we see is there's no sea. <laughs> you say, does that mean there's no Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean? I don't know. Right? It's not necessarily saying there is no water. Right? That would be to make it stand on all fours. Instead, sea imagery, right? you have to go back to the time period and so on, sea imagery is... Even somewhat today, we've sort of conquered the sea to a certain point. Right? Except when I was in Florida a few weeks ago, we had a storm blow in, and you quickly realize you don't tame the sea too well. Right? But sea imagery in the ancient world and in the first century was sort of the idea of disorder. <laughs> uh, unruly. A little bit dangerous. You go on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm blows up, and you get pretty fearful. Right? The whole imagery here is that in the new creation... Everything is new, there's no chaos, there's no disorder. That's why in verse 4, it will say there's no more death, there's no more tears, there's no more crying. Even in the present age that Jesus has inaugurated, right, we still see death and dying. But not in the new heavens and new earth, right? There's no more sea, there's no more chaos, there's no more disorder, there's no more mourning and tears and death and pain and suffering, it's all done. We also see in this new heavens and new earth a new Jerusalem. Now, some <laughs> try, I don't think this is what you do, but there's debates on this, so you, know, you have to realize people differ on these things. But some, some people try to have a picture of this. There's a new heavens and new earth, and then in the middle of the new heavens and new earth is a Jerusalem. I don't think that's what's going on. Right? These are images that are conveying the same thing from a whole different angle. Right? There's a new heavens and new earth, Another way of describing the new heavens and new earth is it's a new Jerusalem. It's a city that is brand new, right? And we know it's brand new because it comes from heaven, right? It's coming down from heaven. This is not the historic city of Jerusalem. In the Bible, the historic city of Jerusalem is a very, very important city, right? It, you first find it all the way back to Melchizedek, right? You then find it with our study of Samuel. David now captures the city of Jerusalem and makes it David's city, which is significant. And it eventually, in the Old Testament, becomes the city of God. Why is it the city of God? Because God dwells there. Now, well, how does he dwell? Well, he dwells in tabernacle and temple and so on, right? So the city of Jerusalem becomes the place, not only of a historic city, but symbolic of God dwelling with his people. It is with the Davidic king and so on. Now, as you work through the whole Bible, this eventually reaches fulfillment in Christ. Christ comes as the great Davidic king. Right? Christ comes who brings the dwelling of God. He is the one who brings ultimately a new Jerusalem. And that's why eventually, right, the future is that we live in a new heavens and new earth, which can be described as the new Jerusalem. And what's significant about the new Jerusalem is that it's the dwelling place of God. You see that in verse 2, 3, and following. So this new Jerusalem is, we'll come back to the notion of the bride. But then in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with them. They will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and so on. Now, why is this new? In some sense, in the Old Testament, you had God dwelling with his people. You have that in Eden. 
You have that restored somewhat in the Old Covenant, right? With Israel, Sinai, God dwells with his people in a holy place, the holy land, with a holy tabernacle and a holy temple and so on. Yet, that's not the completion. Even then, in the Old Testament, it was all hedged, (laughs) hemmed. If you wanted to go into the Holy of Holies, you could only be one person once a year, and you had to have blood. If you walked in there by yourself and you weren't the high priest, you were dead. That was not great access to God, right? We even, as we come to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, he comes as the new temple. He comes as the one who is, remember, at Christmas time we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. In a greater sense, right, he fulfills all of the tabernacle and all of the temple. He is the great high priest, the great Davidic king who is the dwelling of God. He is God the Son in flesh before us. Yet, yet, the future is greater. The future now has the permanent dwelling of God. So what the Lord Jesus has accomplished in his first coming now will reach consummation where we will not just be in his presence as the disciples were and so on. We will now have a new heavens and new earth. God will dwell with us. We will know God in a far greater fashion. That's what makes this ultimately new. Right? So it's a new heaven, new earth. And what grounds it, as we said in verse 5, is God himself. Right? He is trustworthy. He is true. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Right? This isn't grounded by humans. First thing we have to learn for the new year is trust no human. We have humans that we want to trust and get along with and so on, but in the end, if your ultimate hope is found in them, you'll be disappointed. The hope is found in God, the Alpha and the Omega. His word is true. His word is trustworthy. And all that he has done, and of course, this builds on the entire work of Christ, it is done. It is finished. Uh, This is what gives us hope that it will occur. It's not yet here, but it's a guaranteed certainty. Now, this is what gives us hope, doesn't it? Say you have to face persecution where you have to give your life up for the Lord. Is that willing? Are you willing to do that? Well, if you know that the future is secure, you can say, my life is just a blip on the screen. I have eternity. He will raise me. His work is is, is, is that which is guaranteed. I will live with him forever in the new heavens and earth. And that is what spurs us on. That's why he eventually goes on here to use these very words in verses 6 and 7 and following to give them encouragement to overcome. This church was facing trials, facing difficulties. And he says, gives his promises. Because all of this is true, he says, press on. He says, I will give to you, he says in um, verse 6, to him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost. The spring of the water of life, he who overcomes will inherit this. I will be his God. He will be my son. Those are promises. The son language, you will be my adopted children. Right? Uh, by the work of the son of God, you will be mine you forever and ever. Right? To him who overcomes. And obviously this comes out of Isaiah 55. Come drink, no cost. Drink, eat, I've done it all. But trust me, walk with me, press on. That's how it's encouraging these people, and it encourages us to be faithful in our daily lives. And, of course, it contrasts this with the ungodly. The ungodly will come to end. This is Psalm 1, isn't it? The wicked will perish, but the righteous forever will live forever. So here is, first, in some sense, a vision of 
the new creation. Now, in 9 verses 21, 9 verses 21, we have further details of this. And of course, this could be unpacked at great length. Let me just highlight a couple of points just to fire our imaginations and to see the glory of what is behold, what is future to us, to press us on in the present. Verses 9 to 21 now has an angel. An angel that's showing John this vision of the future, and it's described really in terms of a lot of Old Testament imagery. So you have in verse 9, he says, One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls of seven, uh, of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride. Now, I've already alluded to the fact that in this book, the new city is the bride. Now, don't try to fit that. The new city is because that's where God dwells, that's where his people dwell. And so the city can become the people, and the people can become ultimately the city. It's imagery that is conveying God present with his people. That's what it's saying, right? But he says, come see the bride. Come see the city. Come see this bride. And this is a beautiful description here of the bride who is the wife of the Lamb. Now, a few weeks or a couple months ago, right, Aaron preached from Revelation 4 and 5. That's what this is going back to, isn't it? The great vision of God sitting on his throne, the Lamb of God who comes and takes that scroll and opens it up. Well, this is now the fulfillment of this, isn't it? Who is the one who brings salvation to the world and judgment to the world? It's the Lion who is the Lamb. And the Lion who is the Lamb is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And as the Lamb of God, he has purchased a people for himself. So come, the angel says to John, see the church, <laughs> see the bride, see the lamb, the, the people that the lamb has secured by his life, death, and resurrection. That's a beautiful expression, we're the wife of the lamb. This whole marriage theme that runs through scripture, we could spend time on that, right? Ultimately culminates in God's relation to the people, Christ's relation to the church, right? An intimacy of relation, and the lamb of God has secured that. And so in verse 10, he carries in the spirit to a mountain. So this is just a way that John can see this great vision of the city. He shows me the holy city, the Jerusalem, which is the bride, right? So he's looking at the bride, but he's also looking at the city. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of precious jewel of jasper, clear as crystal. And then you begin to see a description of this, which is building on the Old Testament. It had a great high wall, right? Here's the city. Here's the bride, right? Here's the great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. At the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, ultimately what this is is a description of the church. It's a description of the church, and it's a description of the city, the new Jerusalem, that is walled, has gates, has 12 tribes, 12 apostles. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament here is the people of God, right? This is the grand city. And as he describes this grand city, he gives a measurement of it. Now, you're not to push this to the wall. Right? It is so um, exaggerated in terms of its measurement, that's the point of it, right? So what do we read about the measurement of the city? Well, we read in verse 15, the angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. 
ye measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. And it was as wide and high as it is long. Now, if you're thinking about that picture, right? It's width, it's depth, length, and it's height are all the same. And if you were to draw that, what would you get? A cube. A perfect cube. And the cube is, if you put it into miles, it's 1,500 miles long. It's 1,500 miles deep. It's 1,500 miles up. And what's that telling you? It's really big, right? But it's a perfect cube. And the imagery here is, this is what basically is the new creation. <laughs> the cube, the city, is coextensive with the entire universe. That's the point, right? So that the entire universe is this great new Jerusalem from above where the bride and the, and the lamb are found. Right now, in the Old Testament, the only place where you have a perfect cube is in one place alone. First, in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. And, of course, that gets reproduced in the temple. Right? So what is the imagery here? Any Bible person from the Old Testament would say, oh, my goodness. The Holy of Holies is the universe. <laughs> the Holy of Holies is coextensive with the new heavens and earth. I mean, we are in the Holy of Holies. Right? That's what it's saying, right? So the picture here is of a new heavens and new earth, a new Jerusalem, where indeed the bride dwells in the Holy of Holies. And of course, that makes perfect sense, right? God uniquely manifests his presence in the Holy of Holies. Now in this new heavens and new earth, you have the full presence of God in the entire creation. Now, this is far greater than Eden. Right? Eden, God met with Adam and Eve. There were still borders outside of Eden, but now you could say Eden now has been extended to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? And the Holy of Holies, God now dwells with his people. And, so, and then you have the pure description of it. The wall in verse 18 is made of jasper, and it's made of pure gold. And so all of this description is, you're not supposed to find, okay, jasper means this and gold means this. You're just sort of saying, this is a beautiful city. Right? This is absolutely stunning. Right? I was down near Fort Myers with the family, and I go down to Naples, and I go to Captiva, and they're stunning homes. Nothing like this. Right? The foundations of the city or walls were decorated precious stones. First was of jasper, and second sapphire. Third, you know, you just read the description all the way to verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. And so the imagery here is this whole new creation is the presence of God dwelling. Right? And God dwelling with his people. And then in verse 22 and 27, we see elements that are missing. And it shouldn't surprise us if we see the entire universe now as the is the perfect cube, the Holy of Holies. What do we not see in that city? Well, the first thing we don't see in verse 22 is there's no temple there. <laughs> Why? Because the whole thing is a temple. <laughs> you don't need just a replica of it. The temple itself was to point forward to a new heavens and new earth where God would dwell with us and we would dwell in his presence forever. You don't need to go to a temple. Ultimately, the Lord, and then how is it described, the temple? The Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. <laughs> 
The very point of the Old Testament temple was to point you forward to the coming of the Lord. He is the temple, and we now dwell in his presence completely. We also see there's no sun or moon. Now, I do think this is probably allusion back to Genesis, isn't it? It's interesting, on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon, the light bearers. Just confounds people all the time. Oh, how could you make sun and moon and it still be 24-hour days on first day, one to three, and so on? Um, God is the light. God is the one who creates the earth on its axis, and he's the one who shines, and then he makes in the skies light bearers and so on. And what you have in this new heavens and earth is whether there's suns and moons and so on, it doesn't matter, right? Because God is the one who is light. God is the one who gives life. There's none of this that's there, right? Ultimately, he's the one who sustains this city, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. You don't need a sun-created thing to create the light. God is the light. The Lamb is the lamp. And then you have the nations walking in verse 24. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor. No, on that day, no gate will be shut. This is the idea. Every night in, in ancient city, they shut the gates to keep out the marauders. You don't need to do that here because there's no marauders. It's open. The whole universe is open. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more evil ones, and so on. On that day, in verse 25, the gates will never be shut. There's no night there. <laughs> now, whether this means you never sleep, I don't know. The idea is there's nothing dark. It's light, pure, holy, right? And that's what's picked up in verse 27. There's no impurity. I tell you, that's good. Think of our glorification, right? We are sinners. We need to be purified. We need God to take what he has done in Christ, right, and to complete that in terms of our glorification. We also need, right, the removal of the unrighteous. That's a crucial biblical theme, right? This is a universe that's created where there's no more evil sin, evil doers. I mean, we've already seen that in verse 21, right? This is a place where only God's people dwell. The judgment of sin and death, that's good. Judgment is a good thing. The books are finally balanced. Uh, everything is made right and good. God makes it right and good. And that's why there's nothing impure that ever enters it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who are the people of God. And of course, that warning then comes, right, is that if we stand outside the people of God, we're not part of the city. We stand outside of it in terms of judgment, and we want to be part of that city. And then we just finish here in verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 1 to 6. What's central to this city? We've already said what's central to the city. God is central. Right? We, we see here the angel in verse 1 showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne. God and the Lamb down through the middle of the great street on each side. So you have pictures of Eden where you have waters flowing, and you have the tree of life that you have in chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, it's yielding its fruits in the season. Uh, there's no longer, verse 3, any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. The servants will serve him. But then notice in verse 4, they will see his face. <laughs> That's the point, right? The point of the new heavens and new earth is that we will see God. Now, what that exactly looks like, people have debated for centuries. Will we see God in his very being? Well, God's a spirit, right? God's invisible. My suggestion would be that we will see the triune God in and through the glorified Christ. Right? That's what I would say. But regardless, we will see God. 
We will be present there with him. Verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. Now, when you think of the new heavens and new earth, when you think of the future, when you think of heaven, what does your mind run to? Now, it's not wrong to say, oh, I want to see my loved ones who are in Christ. Right? I want to be free of my pain and suffering. Right? All, all of those are good. I mean, you've already had that in here, right? There's no more curse. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more tears and so on and so on and so on. There's no more curse. All of that is good. But in the end, if we do not say truly from the heart, the reason I want to be there is because I want to see his face. I want to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. I want to know the Father through the Son by the Spirit. If that is not driving us to say that's what the future is all about, I have a glimpse of that. As we gather with the people of God, God meets with us, two or three are gathered and so on, yet there's something about the future. This is far greater. This will be even far greater that even the apostles experience. If that is not what's motivating us, we have a false view of heaven, don't we? All those other things are good about relatives and so on, but eventually we have to say, why I want to be there is to know God. See, and why would that spur you on in this life, right? It's because if that is what is purifying me, that is what I'm looking forward to, I want to see him, then I want to be faithful to him. Now, I want to please him. I want to so honor with him my life that I want to say, I want to see you. Right? Think of 1 John 3, right? Those who ultimately see God are those who are growing in grace and sanctified and so on and so on. I mean, that's what drives, that's what's to motivate this church. Too many times our hymns are way off about heaven. Right? They almost sing about, uh, you know, floating on the clouds, playing your harp and so on. But that's really not what heaven's about. It's about a whole new universe. We will be busy at work. <laughs> work is not a bad thing, right? We will be glorifying God with our lives. We'll be in the presence of the Lamb. And the great hymns of heaven often miss that, right? But there's one hymn, and I want to finish with this, that is so helpful that brings our attention back to what Scripture says. And it was a hymn that was written by, or put together by Anne Cousin who was building off of the work of Samuel Rutherford way back in the 1600s. He came later. He was building off Samuel Rutherford, a very famous pastor in Scotland who also wrote the famous Lex Rex against the government and so on. So a lot of very important uh, influence by Samuel Rutherford. She wrote this famous, famous song that captures well the end of the book of Revelation. It was called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Right? It's a new year, and it's like the hourglass. Time is going down. Right? We're moving to the future. But what are we looking forward to? Well, there's just a, there were 19 stanzas of this, so I'm not going to give you all those. But here she just says this in some of her, her songs. She says, The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awaits. Dark, dark has been the midnight. But day spring is at hand and glory Glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. She's picking up the idea we'll see him. 
It were a well-spent journey through seven, those seven deaths lay between, right? So all that I've gone through in life, it's well-spent, even if I have seven deaths, <laughs> to get to Emmanuel's land. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand. That's another way of saying the New Jerusalem. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And then she finishes with this last stanza after saying, oh, Christ is the fountain, and so on. She then says, the bride... Eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace. I don't worry about the gold streets, and I don't worry about the jasper and the carnelian. That's the point. Those things are there in the sense of the beauty of this city. But I gaze at the king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's Lamb. Now that captures the vision of the future. Right? And that vision is to motivate us now. Right? So what will 2022 bring? I have no idea other than suffering, persecution, trials, the spread of the gospel. <laughs> but I do know that this vision was given to us so that it renews our hope it renews our confidence that in whatever we face, think of Hebrews 11, some Christians this year will be cut in half. Others will flourish. Others will see the spread of the gospel and others will be put to death. Right? But whatever we face, the future is secure, the glory of Emmanuel's land. Right? That's what all of history is moving forward to. So 2022 is just one step closer. And as we look to this year, we keep our eyes on the future. And the future motivates us now, encourages us now, renews us now. And what does it do for us now? It means that we stand strong. It means that we trust God's promise. It means that we ultimately move forward and say, whatever happens to my life, it's secure in Him. That's how we press forward to 2022. And that is the vision that the last portion of the Bible gives to us a new vision for a new year. Well, it's an old vision of the future, right? And that is to now lead us to renew our hope and confidence in him. Well, let's pray.